You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. And Father, for us this morning, as we dive into your word together, I pray that we would stand in awe of you as we just sang. Would those not just be empty words that escape our lips, but would we, would we mean that? Lord, may we stand in awe of you and your goodness and what you have revealed to us in your word. I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would embolden us, that you would fill us with hope. Before I say amen, would you take this moment to pray for your own heart? The Lord would prepare you for this time that we have together in his word. Pray that the Lord would speak to you in in fresh and encouraging ways. You take this moment and lift up that prayer. Father, this morning all glory belongs to you. All honor belongs to you. You're worthy of our attention in this space, and so would we give that to you? Would your words speak to us? And would you be honored as holy in this time that we have together? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, I am not Pastor Aaron. Um, he's, he gets this morning off, and so y'all get to put up with me. And uh, we're going to be in a handful of different passages. we got a lot of ground to cover. And so if you love to take notes or if you want to get ahead of the game, we're going to be in three different passages. They'll be up on the screen. Uh, We'll be in 1 Corinthians 7, in Romans 13, and in Luke chapter 12. So if you want to get a little bit ahead of the game and flip to those quickly, then you can can write those down. And uh, y'all familiar with the phenomenon of sleepwalking? pretty strange when you think about it. I myself haven't had any experiences on my own, but um, I've heard plenty of stories. And in college, there was a a friend of mine who called me at two in the morning because he slept walked out of his house and walked for several miles and woke up in the middle of a gas station, completely freaked out. And so I had to wake up and go and and give this, this guy a ride. And I've heard other stories. One person in their sleep walked downstairs into the kitchen, preheated the oven to 350, set some, a sheet of aluminum foil onto a pan, laid out cookie dough to bake some cookies in the middle of the night. I don't know about you, but I would love to wake up to some freshly baked cookies, but that would also be kind of freaky. And another story, there was a person who dreamed that there was a missile heading to their house. And so they were preparing to jump out of the window of the second story of their house when they woke up and realized what was going on. Isn't sleepwalking crazy? That you can be completely asleep, completely unaware of what your surroundings are, and yet you can perform what are complicated actions like tying your shoes and walking for several miles, hopefully on the sidewalk to a gas station or preparing to bake cookies. Some folks in here probably can't even do that while awake. And you can do these complicated actions while you're completely asleep and unaware of what's going on. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, some of us, that might be our spiritual condition. 
this morning. That it seems like we're awake, we're, we're out and about, we're doing things, we're here at church on a Sunday morning, especially on New Year's Eve of all Sundays, and yet on the inside we may be asleep. And if that's not your story this morning, I would argue that that is a temptation that we can all face and that we have to wrestle with. Because the reality is it's extremely comfortable to be a Christian in 21st century Texas. We are blessed in so many different ways, and it is a, it is a comfortable space for us to be in. And we fight an uphill battle against the rest of the culture around us because the culture around us tries to, to lull us into these comforts in our culture. And they live for what we can boil down to four things that our culture lives for. We love our savings, our safety, our resume, and our relaxation. Those are the four things that our culture often tries to sell to us. We love our, our savings. We love to save up money for that vacation, the night out, that new car, that home renovation project that we've been waiting on. We love our safety, and I don't just mean a freedom from harm, because for most of us in this room, that's probably not our day-to-day, -day, but I mean also more than that also a predictability or a sense of control in our situations, because at the end of the day, aren't that, isn't that what makes us feel safe? When things are predictable, when we can, what, we can expect what will happen in our day, we love to do the same sorts of things the same way we always have because change is uncomfortable for us. And we fight to hold every variable in our lives under our control because that makes us feel safe. We love our savings. We love our safety. We love our resume. Isn't this one what the American dream is all about? You go to school for a decade, get your college degree, and for 40 years you work your job, climb that totem pole, earn that salary, earn that position, build up your list of accomplishments. It's what our world sells to us. And all of it ultimately because we also love our relaxation. Because I don't know about you, but there's nothing like coming home at the end of a long day, sitting down on the couch, some dessert, and turning on the TV. We, we love our relaxation. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, we are far too easily pleased. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. John Piper says that we've settled for a home, a family, a few friends, a job, a television, a microwave oven, an occasional night out, a yearly vacation, and perhaps a new laptop. And hear me this morning, these are all great things. They're all wonderful things. They're all great gifts from God. Our, our savings, our safety, our resume, and relaxation, they're all great things, but they are terrible gods. They're great things, but terrible gods. And the, the world will sell us these four things and say, this is what life is all about. This is what we live for. This is what we worship. And we can find ourselves lulled into the comfort of our culture in subtle and yet dangerous ways. We may say, yes, I love Jesus. I live for Jesus. I worship Jesus. But man, I love my relaxation. I know I should be generous with my finances and contribute to the needs and, and give generously, but I love my savings. I know I should be involved in God's mission, step out of my comfort zone to share the gospel and be active within the church, but I love my safety. I love my predictability. I love when things are in my control. I know I should take time to rest, 
spent time in God's word and in prayer to be with God, to be present with my family because the Lord calls us the Sabbath. But I love my resume, my work. And ultimately, this temptation leads us to flip the script of life because we, we become hungry for earthly things and content with the spiritual when we ought to be hungry for the spiritual and content with the earthly things. And all the while, we find ourselves spiritually sleepwalking. And so the question for us to answer this morning together is, how do we wake up? How do we wake ourselves up? And the way that we live is often affected and controlled by the force of time, is it not? I mean, imagine football fans in the room, and if there's two minutes left in a football game, you're probably not going to run for a couple of yards at a time. Time is short. You're going to drop back, and you're going to throw a deep pass. If you're running late for work, you're probably not going to stop at Summer Moon and pick up a latte. You're probably heading straight to work, aren't you? At least I hope you are. And so what does the Bible say to us about time? We'll look in the first passage together in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you'll open up there. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, it's okay. I have mine. We'll, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. <coughs> this is what I mean, brothers. <clears throat> the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Skip to verse 35. It says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraints upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, hear me what's going on in this passage. Paul is not saying, hey, forget about your spouse or your job. Husbands, if you ignore your wives, that's probably not going to go well for you. He's not saying forget about your dealings with the world, forget about your mourning and rejoicing. This is what Paul says. Again, in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. And so in light of that, these other things, our, our marriage, our job, our dealings with the world, the things that we rejoice in, the things that we mourn over, these things are important and matter a lot, but they are not the ultimate storyline of life. They are all means to an end, not an end in itself. And the end of it all is that God may be glorified in everything that we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, we do all things for his glory. And so Paul's not saying, hey, Ignore these things, forget about them. He's saying, hey, remember what the ultimate storyline of life is. If we look again in verse 35 here, it says to promote good order and to secure your what? Your undivided devotion to the Lord. In Greek, it's literally to have a devotion to the Lord that is free from distraction. In other words, we have to be mindful that these other things that do matter and are extremely important are not distractions from our walk with the Lord but instead they encourage and spur and are, over, and are an overflow from our walk with the Lord because time is short. And also in another passage in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, we should have it up on the screen. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Billy Graham, in reference to this passage, he said, Every single day, each one of us only has 24 hours with, within one day. No more, no less. And so the days are evil. 
And the Bible calls us to urgency because of that and because our time is short. And so time is short because Jesus is coming back. If you look again in here in 1 Corinthians verse 31, it says, for the present form of this world is passing away. What that means is, hey, Jesus is coming back. He's going to make all things new. The way that our world runs, the way that our world works today is going to fade away when he returns and establishes his kingdom. And Jesus taught often about his return. There's 330 verses throughout the New Testament that reference his return. That's one out of every 25 verses. And we celebrate his first coming at Christmas. That's what we just came on the other side of. But his first coming points to an even greater one. Because what Jesus set in motion on the cross, the victory that he won in his resurrection, it's going to be inaugurated at his return when he comes to make all things new, to redeem all things, and every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess to God. So time is short because Jesus is coming back. And time is also short because life is fragile. In James, it says that we're just a vapor. We're here a moment. We're gone the next. Or you may be familiar with the passage that Aaron regularly quotes week in and week out that he says, the grass withers, the flower falls, but what? The word of the Lord remains forever. You realize that passage, it's, it's talking about us. It's a quote from the book of Isaiah, and it says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. In other words, we wither, we are fragile, and our glory, anything we could try to claim for ourselves as our own glory, it falls. It's like a flower that falls away. But the word of the Lord, but God, but his mission, his kingdom, his gospel, Jesus remains forever. And life is fragile. We're one car accident away, one unforeseen health crisis, one event away from standing before the Lord. Time is short. And the early church understood this idea extremely well, especially in the midst of persecution. There's, there's a word that appears only once in the Bible, in the entire Bible, and yet we know that it had a profound impact on the early church the word appears at the very end of 1 Corinthians. It's like an exclamation mark at the end of the book. We just spent most of the past year walking through that book, and the word is Maranatha. And it's an Aramaic word. It's borrowed into Greek, and it has three translations depending on how you pronounce it. It means our Lord has come, our Lord will come, and come our Lord. It means our Lord has come. It's a declaration that Jesus has come. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins and he rose again. It's what we just celebrated at Christmas. It's a declaration that our Lord will come. It's the promise that he's coming back to redeem all the brokenness in our world. And finally, it's come our Lord. It's a prayer, a cry of desperation and longing and anticipation for that day when he returns. And we have reason to believe that the early church actually took this word Maranatha and used it as a regular greeting. So as they'd run into each other in the midst of their business, as they show up to worship together, they, they would say Maranatha to one another as a reminder to themselves and to each other of this reality that Jesus has come and he's coming back. And so if we take the idea that time is short and the urgency that we are called to live with and 
this word Maranatha and all that it means, and we put that as the banner upon our lives, it transforms and challenges the way that we live in three ways. And we'll look at these three and then we'll be done. Number one, Maranatha turns us into warriors against sin in pursuit of holiness. Number two, Maranatha moves our feet to the mission of God. And number three, Maranatha fills us with hope in the midst of our suffering. So number one, Maranatha, it turns us into warriors against sin in pursuit of holiness. If you'll flip over to the second passage today in Romans 13, should be just a few pages over. <coughs> Romans chapter 13. And we'll look at verse 11. It says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us today than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul says that we know the time, the hour has come for us to wake up from our sleep, to rouse ourselves, because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Isn't that a beautiful statement? You realize that today you are closer, you're one step closer to standing fully in the presence of Jesus than you were yesterday. What a beautiful truth. But there's a challenge that comes with that also for us. Because of the danger of the times, because of our anticipation of the return of Jesus, because of the reality that we are fragile, we ought to be committed to a right walk with God, not a sleepwalk with God. And it's possible and easy for us to go through the motions, but God calls us to so much more. Because in his presence is the fullness of joy, and he calls us to live in that joy and the satisfaction that can only be found through him, but sin holds us back from that experience. And so here in Romans 13, Paul calls us to cast off our sin, to, to throw it away. It's as if Paul is saying, calling us to, to stop wasting our time. He says, you know the time, you know the hour, salvation is near to us. So stop wasting your time with, with drinking, with sensuality, with quarreling, with jealousy, but instead put on Christ as our identity, and make no provision for the flesh, for our sin to gratify those desires. We have to make total war against sin in our lives because sin hinders our love, our joy, our satisfaction, our fruitfulness, and our glorifying of God. And we shall soon stand before God and we'll realize that all the things that we pursued in our sin mean nothing and are worthless compared to him and his glory. And so God calls us to cast that off, to live for the ultimate storyline, to pursue God. And, if, and God calls us to be holy as he is, but if God is holy, then our view of God is too minimal, our view of sin is too trivial, therefore we are too comfortable. And God is our father, he's, he's our friend, but there's a danger in being too familiar because he is also the sovereign, all-powerful king and creator of the universe. And so 
in anticipation of his return, in anticipation of the time that we shall stand before him. Let's cast off our sin. Let's put on the Lord Jesus as our identity and, and live for him, be committed to a walk in pursuit of him. Maranatha calls us to, to be warriors in, against sin and in pursuit of holiness. Number two, Maranatha moves our feet to the mission of God. So if you look closely throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there's a constant theme woven throughout that we are blessed, that we may be a blessing to all. If you look at the story of Abraham, God says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If you look at the nation of Israel, they're given the revelation of God, the worship and the experience of him. Why? So that the other nations around may come to see who God is. And even us, we are given the gospel. We come to know Jesus so that we can share that blessing with those around us. Even in our material blessings, God blesses us abundantly with the things that we own, with our finances, and he calls us to be generous with those. But there's a temptation for us to grow comfortable in enjoying our own blessings, both spiritual and physical. But we have a greater calling to be a part of God's mission if you flip over to our last passage together in Luke chapter 12. <coughs> Luke chapter 12, we're going to be in verse 35. Luke chapter 12, 35. So Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him, and at once when he comes and knocks, blessed are their servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his, house, whom his master will set over his household to give them the portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But the servant, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that house of that servant will come on a day when he does not know, when he does not expect in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You see what's going on here in this passage? The master who leaves and puts his servant in charge of the affairs of his household and comes back. And then the question that we ask is, was the servant faithful? Was the servant active? Was the servant performing what was expected of him? Or was he instead turning to other things? And it, Jesus ends that story, the parable, with everyone who's been entrusted with much, much is required. And brothers and sisters, we have been entrusted with much, have we not? 
We are richly blessed in so many ways, both materially in the things that we have and also spiritually in our knowledge and relationship that we've come to know in Jesus. We're blessed in so many ways that we may be a blessing to others. But the danger of our world is it lures us instead to enjoy our comforts, to eat and drink and get drunk, to to treat others poorly. Instead of leveraging these things for God and for his mission. We're, we're lulled into enjoying our marriage when it ought to be leveraged for God's mission. We're lulled into enjoying our financial well-being when it is to be leveraged for God's mission. We're lulled into enjoying our free time when it is to be leveraged for God's mission. We are lulled into pursuing our own self-interest instead of the interest of others according to God's mission. But Jesus is coming back soon, and soon we will stand before him. And will our lamps be burning Will we be dressed for action? In a similar parable, the faithful servant stands before his master, and his master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't you want to hear that? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So we've been entrusted with much so let us be faithful to pursue God's mission. And what is God's mission? We are, we are called to love and to serve the church, to be active in discipleship, to show hospitality, to be ambassadors for Christ, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the world, to make disciples of all nations, to preach the gospel and Christ crucified to those who do not know him, and to pray that the Lord, may, that the Lord of the harvest may send workers into the field. And we ought to be willing to be those workers ourselves as well. There's a mission that we are called to. So Maranatha, it, it wakes us up to move our feet for the mission of God. Number three, Maranatha gives us hope in the midst of our suffering. We live in a dark and broken world. I don't have to convince us of that reality this morning. But what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. First Peter 5, he tells us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us, if you remember that from a handful of weeks ago. But then right after that, it goes and says, and after you have suffered for a little while, and when, when Peter says for a little while, for many, he's talking about decades of suffering. And he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, establish, confirm, and strengthen you. Paul says our light and our momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, to the eternal. And Job, a man very aware of suffering and familiar, this is his response in the midst of it. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. 
Maranatha gives us hope because we know that Jesus is coming back and he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain because the old order of things has passed away. Maranatha gives us comfort in our struggles, hope in Jesus' soon return, and peace and trust in the unknown. So, to those who are discouraged, Maranatha. To those who are worried today, Maranatha. To those who are filled with anxiety over the problems that they are facing, Maranatha. To those who mourn, Maranatha. To those who find themselves waiting for deliverance and cry out, how long, O Lord, Maranatha. To those who find themselves losing the battle against their sin over and over again, Maranatha. To those who find their affections for God dull and lifeless, Maranatha. To those who find themselves asleep in their comforts instead of awake and ready, Maranatha. To those who find themselves afraid of stepping out of their comfort zone to engage in the mission of God, Maranatha. To those who live under the false notion that the things of this earth could come even close to satisfying our deepest desires, Maranatha, to those in need of a savior. Maranatha. And if that's you this morning, if, if you find yourself in need of a savior, if you've chased after your savings, your safety, your resume, your relaxation, and find that those things cannot satisfy, Jesus has come to give us life abundant. And he paid the price for our sins and his death, and he rose again, giving us victory from sin and from death giving us new life, giving us new purpose that we live for God, that we belong to him. And he's come to give us life abundant. Only he can satisfy. Only Jesus can satisfy. So would you turn to him? And would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these realities that we find in your word. We thank you for the reality that you are coming, you are returning, that you will make all things new, that all the brokenness that we find in this world is temporary, but you and your kingdom are eternal. So Lord, I pray for all of us in this space that we would not live for the temporary things, but we would find ourselves living for the eternal, that we would leverage the temporary for the eternal. Father, I pray for those of us in this space that suffer trials of many kinds, would we find, find it pure joy in knowing your return and knowing the reality that you are making all things new? I pray for those of us who find ourselves anxious when it comes to the calling of stepping out into your mission, would you embolden us to be faithful to you, that we may enter into your joy and I pray for those of us that find ourselves losing in over and over in a battle against sin. Lord, would you stir us? Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts to give us a new vigor, a, a love, a delight in your commandments, a delight in your way, and a freedom from distractions, from things that keep us from living out the true and ultimate storyline of life that is Christ crucified and Christ glorified. So, Father, all glory belongs to you. 
Lord, I pray that in all the things that we do, we would live for your glory as those who are awake and ready, as those who keep our lamps burning. And may, we all, may our only boast be in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we worship you this morning, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. Feel free to follow us for more content, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.